Thank you, uh, Neville. As Neville says, my name is Tim. I'm one of the members here, and it's my privilege to continue our service in worship as we open the Word of God together. Uh, So we're going to be looking at John chapter 2. John chapter 2. It's good to see everyone here, and, and we have an overflow. Is the video working? Disclaimer, that's a bad angle. <laughs> Definitely you can see my double chin from that angle. But um, it is helpful to have the video. So we're going to read from John chapter 2. And I trust we will continue uh, to see the glory of God in this passage. John chapter 2 verse 1, this is what the word of God says. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had draw the water knew The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifest his glory. And his disciples believed in him. If you do have a Bible... Uh, do please keep it open as we look at this story of this wedding feast. Uh, many people plan their weddings for months and months, sometimes even years, and some have even been known to imagine the day for a whole lifetime. But yet, we're never too far away from that wedding disaster video that's going viral on social media. You've all seen them, haven't you? The bride who falls into the pool in this picturesque poolside wedding, or the groom who drops the the bride with the, the lift in the first dance, or the candles that set someone's hair alight in the service. A bit closer to home in 2011, and I agree the connection here is tenuous, but I want to tell this story. Up in in the Guild Hall in Londonderry, the PSNI stormed a couple's wedding ceremony and arrested them. Uh, the family were in tears. The bride had to change out of her uh, her bride bride's dress into a jumpsuit. They were taken off to Strand Road Police Station for questioning. Before several hours later, the PSNI realised they'd made a mistake. And uh, there's, a, there's a mixture of responses. There's shock, and we see these videos, and we think, oh, how terrible. And then we also sort of laugh and think it is quite funny. And sometimes it's just a, an insignificant disaster that can happen. A few raindrops at an outdoor service, just asked Ollie and Rachel. Uh, but here we have in this passage what is quite a substantial wedding disaster. And this disaster had the potential to leave the groom significantly shamed in his local community, financially exposed. And it 
risked destroying the celebration of the couple's new life together. They ran out of wine for the wedding feast. But yet, of course, Jesus was there. And this wedding catastrophe, it it provides the backdrop for what became the most momentous and meaningful wedding party in the history of the world. Here in the back end of nowhere in Cana of Galilee, Jesus is going to initiate his program of miraculous signs that are going to show him to be the long-waited-for Christ, the Son of God, and the only true source of life and joy. Right here in this catering nightmare, Jesus is going to show his disciples a glimpse of his glory, the messianic glory of a, 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 a savior king who is bringing the joy of a new creation into our world. So let's look at the details of the story. You can see there in verse number one, John introduces this event uh, with a focus on the timing. He says, on the third day, and we don't have time to go back, but he has mentioned a number of days in chapter one. So when you come to the end of chapter one, you come to day number five. And now we've got the third day, day number six, now day number seven. This is the final day of the week of John is recorded in the first chapter and a half of his gospel. And, and that's significant because let's not forget, we, we saw last week with Danny, how is it that John starts his book? He starts this account of the good news of Jesus Christ in the beginning. Echoing the most famous words in all the Hebrew scripture. John is neither going for the modest or the subtle approach, is he? As he records the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's mimicking, he's echoing the, those famous words of creation to say this message of Jesus is a new creation, a better creation. And so it's not a coincidence that here John records these days in chapter 1 and now on the third day, uh, uh, which is the seventh day, a new creation week is climaxing here at this wedding. And in many ways it's sort of a, a random setting up north in Galilee, some unnamed folk are getting married. But yet how appropriate at the end of this section that in this week of new creation that John has recorded, it should culminate with the celebration of a new beginning. A man and a woman becoming husband and wife. Two becoming one new thing. And it's here, in this seemingly random backwater place, but in this celebration of a new beginning where Jesus is going to initiate his series of miraculous signs. John then, not only the timing, but he introduces some characters. Firstly, there's a shout out for Mary, Jesus' mother. And of course, unlike Matthew and Luke, uh, their gospel accounts, we don't have the story of Jesus' birth in John. So this is the first mention of Mary. And then in verse number two, Jesus mentioned and also his disciples, most likely talking about the five men who joined Jesus in the previous chapter, chapter one, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and another who is unnamed. Either way, it's obviously uh, some sort of family connection or, or some sort of local mate who's getting married and they're all there for the celebration. 
And in Northern Ireland here, we're pretty famous for, for big, big bashes, big weddings. You know, it's not a couple of hours in the afternoon. It's a full day affair. Uh, but in first century Galilee, the celebrations could go on for up to a week. They had a, we had a patch on them. I'm not sure how it worked with holidays, but I'm sure it was good business for the Airbnbs. But they all gathered together for a week of celebration. And, and it's now that we start to see that this is all about to go disastrously wrong. Whatever hours and weeks and months of planning has gone in, there's a major supply issue. They've ran completely out of wine. It would have been the, the bridegroom's responsibility to provide the wine, enough wine for the celebrations for the whole week. And such a, a failure, such a, such a letdown would have been such a, an awful shame in that culture. And, and, and there's evidence that suggests he could have even been litigated against by the bride's family. Either way, he's exposed shamefully and financially. And perhaps Mary, Jesus' mother, she maybe had a role in the catering or she, she felt for the groom. He's in this terrible situation where he's ran out of wine. And, and, and so she does what she instinctively had learned to do. And that was turn to her firstborn son. And so she turns to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. However, things for Mary and Jesus had recently changed. Jesus had moved out of home in the recent few weeks. Earlier this very week, as John records in chapter 1, Jesus had been pointed out by John the Baptist as the one upon whom the Holy Spirit has come. Jesus had started to gather his disciples. And he was now officially embarking on his public ministry, his public divine mission. And so, so, so the relationship has changed. And so Jesus somewhat unexpectedly and uh, uh, responds to Mary woman. What does this have to do with me? Now, it wasn't rude or maybe as harsh as it seems in our English language. W- woman was a polite, mannerly way to uh, address a lady. In fact, if it helps, um, the scholar F.F. F. Bruce says the Greek word is very similar to the Ulster expression, woman dear. Who knew our idioms helped explain what the ancient Greeks meant? But more importantly, it, it wasn't mum. It wasn't mother. It was abrupt, and it deliberately puts this distance between Mary and Jesus. I'm sure there was an expectation from Mary that he's, he's, he'll help us out here. He'll sort of say, I'll speak to Jesus. But it's clear now that as, as, as he moves out into this public ministry, this mission, there would be a change of that mother-son relationship. As Jesus is embarking on this task of bringing the new creation There would be no sense in which Mary had the inside track or his ear or a private line. He was now to be seen clearly to be the Christ, the Son of God. And she would have to come to him on the same basis as everyone else. On the basis, not of family, but of faith. (coughs) Jesus here mentions his hour. My hour has not yet come, he says to her. The time he refers to several times through this gospel as the time when his glory will be widely demonstrated through the cross, the resurrection and his ascension back to heaven. And the the point is clear that Jesus is now free. He's free from human control or family expectations or human timetables. He's been called to something greater. 
his heavenly father's mission. And that has a timetable of its own, a timetable that would eventually lead to the cross. Yet, despite this rebuke, you know, Mary is a wonderful example in how she responds. She sort of perseveres and she turns to the servants and she advises them, not so much now as a mother, but as a a faithful believer, do whatever he tells you. It was always going to be bittersweet for Mary, wasn't it? For that relationship to change, for the loss that she would encounter as Jesus takes up his divine mission. But how timeless and glorious is her advice? Is is that for her to pass on, if you like? Do whatever he tells you. And although not knowing exactly what he will do or how he will do it, she knows to trust him based on knowing him. But I'm sure in the back room of the wedding, it was really panic stations. Think Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares, Galilee edition. Everyone's stressing out. The groom has failed. The ramifications severe. But Jesus does step in. And he says, fill the jars with water. Now, I think we can safely assume there must have been a bunch of empty drinking vessels or jars for the party. Yet Jesus does the most bizarre thing. And he he points over and instructs the servants to fill these other jars that are the stone jars that were there for the sacred Jewish ceremonies of purification. These six massive stone religious pots. I can almost imagine one of the servants, you know, in his frenzy, like going off to get one of the normal drinking jars. And and his mate goes, no, 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 no. I think he said get those ones. Those big religious pots that we use to wash our hands and feet. He said get that. Yeah, fill them up. Fill them up. And it wasn't that these were the only jars that were there or that they were big. But Jesus was carefully planning on painting a very stark picture and making a momentous point. These stone jars that were set here were were representative of the whole Jewish system with all of its rituals and ceremonies as a way to deal with sin and make us clean before God. They followed the instructions of Jesus. They filled them to the brim. And then Jesus instructed them to draw some out and to serve it to the master of ceremonies. And I guess following the advice of of, of Mary, they did exactly what he said. They drew out from the jars, handed it to the master of the ceremonies. And he tasted it and he's astounded. This wine is incredible. I can imagine his shocked face. The, the groom had been peddling some, you know, Tesco value, basic wine. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the richest, the brightest, the most extraordinary batch of wine he has ever had the pleasure of tasting is given to him. He can't believe that the groom has held this back until now. Surely if you had this, you would start up front with it. But the statement that Jesus is making, the picture that Jesus is painting is bold and it is clear. I will complete and replace the water ritual of Judaism with the abundant wine of new life. The purification through the old system, the Old Testament system of law, it was both inadequate and useless. And the time for it is complete. I'm now here, the messianic king, and I am bringing something better. I am bringing something better that has been kept for now. 
This indeed is the climax of the seven days that John has been recording for us here. The seven days of new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. We'll see it again when we go later in chapter 2, that Jesus is doing away with the temple. He now, his body is the temple where God can meet with sinful men. In chapter 3, the leading teacher of Israel, old Nicodemus, is, is told that he must be born again. He needs new life if he's to see the kingdom of God. Chapter 4, the woman of Samaria, the old ways of worship. We won't worship in a city or in a mountain, but true worship will be in spirit and truth. Jesus is here to do away with the old and bring in the new, which is so much better. I want us to imagine what these disciples saw. I mean, they just started following him this week. And their favorite Old Testament prophets continually spoke about this future day that was coming, a day of salvation when the Lord would come. And Isaiah pictured this day as a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine. Isaiah says it will be a day of rich food and aged wine well refined in chapter 25 of his prophecy. Amos In chapter 9, he said that God has promised in that day I will raise up the booth of David. And the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And all the hills shall flow with it. I wonder if these verses were starting to come back to them. For these disciples, it had been their eager expectation that... That the Messiah would come, God's promised deliverer would come, and he would bring this day of salvation, a feast of well-aged wine, this superabundance. And here they were, after this whirlwind week of meeting this Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth. And he's quite literally putting on a feast where the wine is flowing. There's gallons and gallons of the stuff. The pots, there would have been 600 odd bottles of wine worth in those pots. And John calls this miracle in verse number 11 a sign as he does throughout his gospel because he wants us to see the significance, the significance of it. It's not just that Jesus is showing that he has power. Of course he has power. It's not just that he had power over nature or that he had power over time and he could make water into wine. But the significance of it, it yelled out to those disciples and anyone who understood the Old Testament that the Messiah is here. Salvation is here. The wine is literally flowing down, as the prophet said. And you know, for for all the grief we give the disciples, at, at this point they at least got something. Because John records this the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Cana of in Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's the response that John wants to see. That's the, jo- the, deci- the, the response that John wants from is- us this morning as we behold and get a glimpse of the glory of who Jesus is. Jesus didn't come just to service our needs. He's here to usher in a whole new creation. And at this point, it doesn't matter whether you're his earthly mother or you're an old teacher like Nicodemus. The new creation, the, 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 what we actually need is to be born anew by putting our faith and our trust in him. So if you're not yet a Christian this morning, try to get a glimpse of Jesus in this passage. 
If you want to see more, come along to the Christianity Explored. It'll be more of the same to see the glory of who Jesus is, which beckons us to respond in faith and in trust. There's another element to this picture painted here with this miracle. The the wine, as so often in scripture, expresses the, the joy of the celebration, right? So the wine's run out. The joy has evaporated. And obviously this, a celebration of relationship, losing its wine, losing its joy, paints, unfortunately, an accurate picture of what is true of so many relationships today. Yes, marriages, even families, friends, dare I even say churches. Life with each other often can have a soreness or develop a disappointment, frustration creeps in and and robs us of the joy. The wine runs out. Relationships which should be full of wine and joy can often become harsh and bitter. And in this sign, Jesus is, is saying that I'm here to deal with that problem. When the, when the wine runs out, what broken or, or fractious relationships need isn't the water of the religious ceremony or, or changed or trying to dress up the externals, but a deep cleansing of the spiritual filth that's below the surface in each of our hearts. And Jesus here shows himself not only to be the messianic king who's bringing in this age of salvation, but he's also the great and faithful bridegroom who provides where the other one failed, who provides true purification of the heart, which leads to copious amounts of joy. You know, in chapter 1, John introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God, and I think we're pretty good at reminding ourselves and thinking about what all that meant for Jesus to be the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. But how often do we think of Jesus as our living, loving, eternal, faithful bridegroom. He both died once for all to deal with sin, but he also lives to continually cleanse us to ongoing holiness ahead of that great and perfect wedding feast that awaits in the culmination of all things and in glory. Paul describes in that famous passage which John is here painting for us in this picture that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any sure thing that he might be that she might be holy and without blemish What grace it is that Jesus would choose us to be his bride. So how often do you think of Jesus Christ as your bridegroom? And are you trusting him in the work that he is doing as your bridegroom? His purifying work is not the repetitious slog of the scrubbing the surface with the cold water from the jars. That's useless and joyless. His purification is the opposite. It's deep. It's rich. Generous. It leads to joy and true life. Of course, the ongoing process of his purification of our character 
is rigorous and demanding. And it will continue to be as he challenges our joy-destroying deep desires and selfishnesses. But we know, don't we, as our bridegroom, as Paul says, he loves us. He gave himself for our good. And surely when we consider the wonder of what he has done, what he here offers in this picture, our love for him will triumph over our love for ourselves. And we can be confident in every step of repentance and faith. It leads to greater joy and a greater capacity for the true joy that only he can provide. As we close, I want to remind us of that well-worn quote of Tim Keller's that actually comes from his little book on marriage. He says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Surely, more than ever, that's the experience for each believer in having Jesus as our groom. It will be painful. It will be painful to see our sins and our flaws, ones that we want to suppress and ignore. I've seen it. It's hard. It's an ongoing process. But we'll experience love, assurance, acceptance with God and cleansing that gets to the very heart of the issue. That will bring the highest quality of wine, of joy, of life. And surely we encourage one another in this process. It's greater than we could even dare to imagine. That's why we sung that hymn. Take these words with this passage this week. Oh, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. He brings a poor vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. I trust in this passage We get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, the Christ, here to bring salvation and new creation. And the Lamb of God, who is our true and better bridegroom, who has committed himself to us, who gave himself to us for us, and will not rest until we join him in the beauty of holiness on that day, the greatest wedding feast still to come that day in glory. Let's... Close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that we have the wonder of the Word made flesh, that we can see you fully and finally revealed in your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray for those of us that have yet not come to faith in him, that we would see a glimpse of his glory this morning that would provoke in us repentance and faith. And for those of us who have uh, been yours now for some time, we pray that we would participate in the ongoing work of our great and glorious bridegroom as we 
go step by step in obedience and faith. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you and the work of your word through the power of your spirit in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.